Well, good morning, everyone. It is freezing outside, and it feels a little colder, I think, because of those warm days that we had. But it also feels like we've kind of made it through the worst of winter, and gentler times lie ahead. So, I am regularly inspired by the life of our founding master, Sodasan. Earlier in the service, we recited and bowed to the fourfold grace. These are the things without which life would be impossible. Sky above, the earth below, our parents, fellow beings, and laws of social life. Lately, I've come to think of Sodasan as almost a fifth grace. While technically my life could exist without knowing of him, it would be much diminished. And our shared life here as a Sangha would be impossible because everything around us here at the Wan Dharma Center begins with him. His story is really amazing. He overcame huge obstacles like being born into poverty and never being able to find his own teacher. But mostly, he never gave up. And this we can apply to all our lives. So if you're new to Wan Buddhism, you can learn more about this modern-day sage on our website. And even better, as the weather continues to warm, you can walk the, medita- the meditation trail that's been constructed here at the Wandharma Center. This traces the 10 stages of Sodasan's life, and each stop has a descriptive plaque describing his life. The first location is about 100 yards in that direction, on the edge of the, of the field, and it goes continually, continuously around the edge of the property by the, by the uh, uh, forest line, out to where the garden is, crosses the, the driveway, and then comes back again on the trail ending at the dining room. So I hope you can, you can walk that trail soon, and it will inspire you as well. I know it. So I've been thinking that a, a Dharma talk could simply be a thank you note to Sodasan for his unyielding perseverance to learn the truth of the universe and for all that he gave to us after finding it. So today, I want to thank him for his vision of our infinite potential. And let me begin by asking this question. Are any of you guys fans of professional wrestling? No. I guess that doesn't surprise me. But I will confess that I was once a huge fan of wrestling. It was a few years ago. I was eight or nine years old. Every Friday night, I would sit with my Uncle Charlie and watch the fights, as we called them, as my mom visited with, her, with my grandparents. 
So you can imagine the scene if you are of a certain age. Um, the TV was sort of flickering black and white and about maybe 10 inches square. And the air was blue from Uncle Charlie's chain-smoked Lucky Strikes. Well, in fact, two years later, Uncle Charlie became ill and died. And it turns out those cigarettes really were killing him. And thus, that ended my love of professional wrestling. But these are really happy memories. We'd be, I could stay up until 10 o'clock. We were laughing and hollering. These are really high times for an eight-year-old. And I still remember many of those characters from the wrestling universe. They always fell into two categories, the good guys and the bad guys, and nothing in between. And the greatest bad guy was a wrestler named Killer Kowalski. He was a giant slab of a man, <laughs> not really chiseled, just enormous. Um, there was a myth that he'd actually bitten off the ear of an opponent and eaten it in the ring. No one ever saw this, ever, but the myth persisted. As soon as he, began to, as soon as he appeared on the, uh, in the ring, the crowd would begin to jeer, and he would shake his fists back at them and glare, accepting his role, and then begin to bludgeon his opponent into submission. Then on the other end of the, of the spectrum, there was a wrestler named Apollo, and he was from Argentina. And he was all of five foot seven inches tall, and he weighed maybe 160 pounds. He wore no shoes and just a small gold loincloth. And he relied on guile and speed to defeat his opponents. His signature move was to do repeated standing backflips until the other guy just became hypnotized. And then he would jump up and grab his, around his head with a scissor lock and they'd both fall to the, to the canvas and the guy would be pinned. This guy, Apollo, he kind of reminds me of Reverend Song, our Tai Chi teacher from down in Philadelphia, who can also do standing backflips, by the way. So professional wrestling was back then, and still is today, entertainment. These guys were actors, and hopefully they had lives outside the ring. And my point is simple and obvious. What if our own lives were as brutally confined as these wrestlers? Every time Kowalski won, the crowd still hated him. They always thought he was doing illegal things when the referee wasn't looking. And the few times Apollo lost, we still loved him, knowing that somehow the match was fixed. These guys were not allowed to change. And sometimes it does feel that way for us. The forces of our environment or relationships can feel like a prison at times. And then there are these habits that we all have, carefully constructed year after year. So I ask again, can we really change? Uh, Sotasan, throughout his life and writings, says yes, without hesitation. 
He also says yes without extreme drama. He says it as if it was self-evident. Of course we can change. This is our nature as sentient beings. And for humans, big change is possible. Even total liberation in this very lifetime. But, as Reverend Joe said in his Dharma talk two weeks ago about practice in general, this change is simple, but it's not easy. So I ask, uh, why did Sodasan believe that change is possible, almost inevitable? The starting point for him, as for all Mahayana Buddhists, was the empty nature of what we call our self. Is it possible that this rock-hard thing, this personality, is not as fixed as the wrestler's personas? We just recited the Heart Sutra just a little earlier in the service. It says that deep in our nature is a very empty place, devoid of sensory conditions and fixed traits. And I have so struggled with that word empty throughout my practice here. To my mind, and maybe the Western mind in general, it has a negative connotation. Does anyone else feel that? It feels kind of dark and cold, like everything might even be meaningless, superficially at least. But Sodasan turns this word emptiness upside down and inside out. He says that if our true selves are not fixed, then they also have infinite potential. And this feels true to me and optimistic, but not falsely rose-colored. We're not destined to endlessly repeat our ways and responses to sensory conditions. We have the potential to change. We're not stuck like those wrestlers. By the way, it was, it was Reverend Yu's uh, book on the Heart Sutra called Thunderous Silence that introduced me to this different way of looking at emptiness. So thank you, Reverend Yu. There is a story in our scriptures about a young man who lived carelessly, interested only in pleasure. He had a spiritual awakening, and soon after that, he met Sodasan. He was full of zeal, and he became the master's disciple very quickly and made a vow to live a worthy life and to help others. However, after a time, he slid back into his old ways of debauchery, as the scripture says. He would avoid Sodasan at every possibility, and he slunk into the shadows. I love this story because, because this guy is us, or at least me. Maybe we're not as, as debauched. We all have times of great expectations and then come up a little short 
and feel unworthy. Eventually, he was forced to confront Sodasan. And he did not waste time indulging this young man's guilt, nor did he comfort him. Instead, basically, he said, snap out of it. You are deceiving yourself and squandering this great opportunity of being human and of, and of meeting a, dharma, a true dharma and also of meeting a teacher. This, these are great gifts. So please, do not continue to avoid me, but instead, work hard to regulate your mind. It's like he's saying, you can do this. You are neither cursed nor charmed. How things turn out really depends on how much work you put in. The, um, the great Vipassana meditation teacher, S. N. Goenka, puts it this way. If you practice diligently and honestly, then you are bound to succeed. And by bound, I think he means bound like cause is bound to effect. It will happen. And then in another discourse, another disciple says to Sodasan, not only is my innate ability dull, but I have only been practicing a short time. I don't know how I will ever succeed. What shall I do? This is probably projection on my part, but I detect a whiff of false modesty here. It's almost as if this guy is saying, because I'm a disciple, would you please confirm that I'm a good guy, despite all these indications that I'm a doofus? And again, Sodasan will not take the bait. He replies, practice in religious orders has little to do with innate ability or how long one is practiced. This is good news for us. It depends only on whether or not a person can exert oneself in belief, zeal, questioning, and dedications. In other words, success is up to you, my friend. Well, in closing, I don't want to make Sodasan sound like too much of a stern uncle because he was first of all a man of great, great compassion who wanted us all to succeed like all great teachers do. Although we must do it ourselves, we have those four great gifts of grace. Again, heaven and earth, our parents, fellow beings, and laws that are always there helping us. And on top of that, he left us with his scriptures. And the first 86 pages of those scriptures are a densely packed toolkit. Here are practical methods for successful change and growth. Some we practice today, like sitting meditation, chanting meditation, but there are many others. Last week, uh, Reverend Ginger told us that in March, we'll begin a Thursday night class to explore the core principles and practices of Wan Buddhism. 
They need more than 15 minutes to explore. And I hope you can join us as we open up that toolkit. This is uh, where you'll find out why Sodasan says in another part of the scripture, thus I have provided perfectly precise guidance regarding your methods of practice. I urge you all to practice diligently according to this dharma and to accomplish the great task of transcending the ordinary and entering sagehood as quickly as possible. So we see, for him it was never a question of if, but only when. So I hope we can practice together on Thursday nights. Thank you very much.